Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Yay, we're ready. <laughs> yeah, are you excited? Are you excited about your new new gig? I'm I'm very excited. I'm I'm already antsy to start working. Which I don't know what I think that's just maybe because I'm a broken human being. <laughs> I've only had a week off and I'm ready to get back to work. It's taken a week just to kind of get over my guilt about not working to some degree. <laughs> and I think it is guilt. I think it, there is some amount of guilt of not have being constantly busy or having some amount of anxiety or stress or things to fill up my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first few days I sat there and I intentionally sat in my hammock and I read some books and I hung out with my kids and I did that kind of stuff. And I could not get over this pervasive feeling in the back of my mind of just, I should be doing something else or this should, I should be doing more productive things or I should be working on my house or working on fixing up my garden. Like there's just like even things that I normally find retreat and pleasure in Mm -hmm. the fact that I wasn't working on those was causing me a mild level of anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel at all rested given that you just had a week between? I do now. Okay. I do. I feel rested now. And I think it took me about a week to kind of detox, to get over the feeling of constantly needing to do the next thing or contribute or be involved or be on IRC and checking in on stuff or be looking at GitHub issues or be contributing to some discussion or something like that. Um, it took me about a week to kind of get over it. And now that I'm over it, I'm obviously going to be starting a new job. So <laughs> that's healthy. <laughs> that's exciting. Do you have any, is there anything in particular you're excited about with regards to Elixir at uh, Bleacher Report? Bleacher Report, <clears throat> they have, Bleacher Report has the problems that I'm very interested in trying to solve. Problems about with scale and problems with reliability and messaging and, and all these sorts of things that you don't always get at different jobs. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, I mean, forever when I was doing consulting, that was the thing I was really wanting was I was really wanting to solve these kind of bigger problems. And I think that's like at the end of the day, why consulting never quite worked for me long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be something I go back to at some point in my future. That was one of the reasons I was really having an internal struggle with that. And it's one of the reasons I ended up leaving it was because I wanted to solve different problems. And it was my experience that you know, companies just don't outsource that kind of stuff all that often. So it's, it's harder to get experience solving those kinds of things. And there's some real drawbacks to, to taking on problems like that or to going and working for a product company, as opposed to a consultancy, like you deal with tech debt, you know, a lot more. I mean, most of programming, I think is dealing with tech mm-hmm. debt, you know, it's very rare that you actually get to sit down and just code up something brand new, and then walk away from it. And then you're done with it. I think the majority of the time, you know, software's life is spent being refactored not being created right no that's true so i think there's some of that um that's and for some people that's going to be a drawback because that's not as exciting to them or not as interesting to them and i think that's valid you have drawbacks like you have to be on call right and you have to be around when stuff goes wrong and you're responsible for it when it goes down at three in the morning or whatever the case may be and that's going to be a drawback to certain people too you know certain people are just not interested in that i kind of think that those sorts of problems. Uh, they come with the territory like like having to be on call is part of getting to solve like really hard problems you know what i mean that's like that's a bit of the that's a bit of like you have to eat your broccoli to eat your cake right totally if you want to totally. if you want to be working in that sort of capacity and you want to be working on those sorts of problems then you you take you're taking the good with the bad 
and some of the bad might be yeah stuff is down and you're you got to be up and working on it and fixing it and being involved and all that kind of stuff but but i'm okay i'm like personally okay with making that kind of trade-off because by and large uh the benefits for me outweigh the outweigh no totally the no that makes a lot of sense it's exciting. I think it'll be really interesting from what I hear, at least. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really excited about it. Ben has already been messaging me about, hey, how would you start to think about this? Or how would you start to think about putting these problems together? And that's been really that's exciting. Awesome. That's been a little flavor. Yeah, of, totally. Of how are we going to start to build these things? And they've done such a good job, right? Like Bleacher Report being one of the big cases people tend to look at when they're talking about shifting from something to Elixir. To me, they're the original success story. <clears throat> yep. And I know that yep. that's maybe not, and that might be revisionist right. to some <laughs> a little degree, bit, yeah. but I think they were one of like the real breakout companies that proved that Elixir was a viable option, that proved you could get these real benefits and that they were real, real benefits. And now we have a lot more success stories as well to go along with that. That's true. We, you know, we've talked about before, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm excited to go to a place where they, you know, they have seen that success. So they're all bought in on it. There's no sort of discussion about, oh, should we be using Elixir or not? Or they've already decided, you know, they're already bought in and they're, they're yeah, no, involved totally. in the community. Exactly. Which is awesome. Mm-hmm. I hear that from a lot of folks, like people occasionally come up to me, will have conversations about like, oh, uh, I want to adopt Elixir at my company. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, but you know, how do I, how do I do that? Right. How do I get buy-in? And I think Ben did write a really good book with some folks about that, mm-hmm. but it's hard, right? It can be hard in the beginning to get the buy-in or to like, what, what do you think? is the most effective approach, right? I guess it differs depending on the context and the company, but if someone were to ask you that, what would you say? Oh, man. I know. It's tough. If I knew how to do that, <laughs> um, I don't know. It, my life would probably be a little bit different. <laughs> I think it's a really hard problem, and I don't think it's specific to Elixir, though I do think Elixir, I think there are specific deficiencies in Elixir right now that make it harder to adopt. But I think a lot of it is just marketing. It just comes down. I mean, and it's it's kind of crappy because I think there's a there's a subset of programmers who want things to be based on merit. Like we use this term a lot of the using the right tool for the right job. And I call BS on that completely, not because I think that that ethos is wrong, but because I don't actually think anybody really does that. I think very few people actually choose the quote unquote right tool for the right job in and as much as it's used colloquially. I don't think anybody's sitting here going, well, I need massive concurrency, so I'm going to use XYZ language. Or I need whatever. I need, I need this technical characteristic, thus we chose this. That is a part of how people make decisions. But at least in my experience, it's a very, very small part. And the majority of it is, what does my team want to do? What can I hire for? You know, what, what are my people excited about using? And what do we have to... You know, how do I get and how do I get the most people involved in this process? And what do we have the most domain knowledge about, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, you know, if you, if you look at uh, like a Venn diagram and you have languages that are just like scattered across this thing, all of those things, all the human parts are the original big circle of things. Mm-hmm. And then you pick inside of that circle based on technical merit. That's it. That's my experience. anyway. No, I think that's really interesting. Well, I think that's. Totally valid. I mean, there's so many other factors in addition to just the language that you're using. And I think people would like to think or would like to always choose exactly the right tool. But again, there are so many other factors. And we know that software is not just, you know, technical problem. There's also so many human factors that are involved in order to make something to take it from an idea and actually ship it to production, right? At the end of the day, I think you can make anything scale and you can make anything work long term. You can make any language or runtime do whatever you need it to do and you'll just make it work. 
You'll just spend enough time. If you're invested in it, you'll just. And have the money to put, do it. Right. Yeah. Up until the money runs out or your people all leave, you'll put the time and effort into making it work long term. There's tons of anecdotes about this, whether it's Facebook, you know, making PHP work for forever or it's GitHub scaling, you know, Ruby and Rails or doing all these things to just make those solutions work. And they'll just put time and money into it. And they do that because that's the part of their culture. It's part of the tool of choice. It's whatever the case may be. Uh, and that's not to say like people don't always, you know, choose new languages. I mean, people do that, obviously, and they, they pick new runtimes. But I think it comes down to so much of what is your team willing to invest in? What is your team? Because you have to you have to invest at some level. You have to learn the tooling. You have to learn these languages and their infrastructure, you got to get involved. At least somebody does. You can't work from the outside and not get involved if you're going to make something work long term. You're going to learn those internals. You're going to learn about, you know, what are the new features coming to the language or this tool set or whatever the case may be. You're going to invest in something. I think that's why most people choose to invest in things that are pretty safe. It's why they choose to invest in things like C Sharp, Java, JavaScript, just because those are those are reasonable choices. They're close at hand. You can find people to work and work in those solutions and you figure out the technical problems with it after the fact. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I, I mean, I think about it, I like, guess people as the Elixir community grows, I'm curious, like I think, you know, when Ben came and gave a talk, he came and gave a talk about how they did a Bleacher Report where they took a very small slice of their application and just converted that. And then, you know, piece by piece, were able to actually transition their stack. But it does take buy-in, right? It does take people being like, yeah, this is okay. Let's do it. The argument that I hear a lot when you look at um, a success like Bleacher Report, and it's actually why I think they are a really good example of a success story. They are the sort of breakout example. But in some ways, they're not the best example for Elixir uh, overall. And the reason is, uh, the pushback I get is, well, they were successful because they got something out the door. They, they made it work and they made it work on Ruby and Rails up until they actually had scaling problems and then they rewrote. That is a very common story now. We have a lot of stories uh, that are coming out about, oh, we had this thing. It was in some other language. It was in Java or it was in Ruby or it was in Python, whatever. Now we're rewriting it in Elixir because we understand the domain more. We understand the characteristics of it. We needed to scale more, et cetera, et cetera. We had all these reasons to move to Elixir. And now we've rewritten. And the pushback that I hear when I bring up those stories is, well, right, but they were successful because they had a proven thing and they didn't spend a bunch of time writing it in Elixir up front and learning that tool set. They did something, they, they wrote their initial prototype in something that was proven, something that we all knew that worked and something that they could rapidly iterate on and get out the door quickly. And so to that end, I actually, you know, in some ways, they're, they're a really, really good example for people who are established companies who are looking to solve specific problems. So that's great to have. But in other ways, they're, they're not a, a, a great example for the company who is just getting started or getting off the ground. And what's the reason? Why should I choose Elixir? Knowing that I, I have to prove that my business is successful first. Mm -hmm. Knowing that I have to gain customers or prove that my market or that my idea makes sense in the market or well, why wouldn't I just windmill slam rails on it and just knock that out because I can gym install my idea and away I go. I mean, do you think there's really that much, I'm curious, that much of a lag time between that and, I mean, I guess there's a little bit more overhead, but with Elixir, right? I mean, let's assume that, I mean, if somebody knew rails and didn't know Elixir, sure. Let's assume that you were choosing between two and you didn't know either. For me personally, I would, my argument is always like, well, you don't really lose any speed. You just, you, you just, 
you get into it and you you never have to rewrite and you can still iterate quickly and you can still build things quickly and you can still get things done. But I'm not sure that we've marketed ourselves that well to that crowd. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the Ruby community, I mean, I know we always talk about the Ruby community. <laughs> part, of it's, part of that, I often wonder how much, if that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, it's right. where we all came from. It is our context. But I also, I also have this sort of suspicion that as a community, Elixir needs to shed that. Because I think we're, I don't know is that is that helpful anymore. I think we need to move beyond that. But that's a different conversation. Yeah. The thing that the Ruby community has, which I find really interesting, is that the Ruby community is 100% internalized that Ruby is slow. If you talk about the fact that Ruby is slow, no one cares. And no one cares because they've just internalized that it's slow and we just have ways of solving that. Right? They just move beyond that. And the trade-off there that most people will tell you is, well, I can get so much more done in this language. I can have all these gems I can install, or I have this really elegant, simple language where I can just get things done really quickly. And that's a market. That's like, a, that's like 100% marketing. In a vacuum, that, that decision makes no sense technologically. If, if, if we made decisions based on technical, technical merit alone, there's no way that Ruby would have ever won. And the, fact, the simple fact of the matter is we don't make decisions based on technical merit alone. I mean, honestly, the greatest example of that is Ruby. It's the, the rise of JavaScript. Like, you know, these are languages that have serious flaws in them from a technological perspective. And yet they are incredibly, incredibly successful. And most of that's marketing. Most of that is more about people things than it is about technical. Well, things. I mean, JavaScript a little bit just because the browser. <laughs> But yes. Well, yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But I mean, but back in the day too, like JavaScript wasn't the only solution to this. But JavaScript won over a bunch of other solutions, some of which were arguably much better, and it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, so from a marketing perspective, Elixir has to pick a competition it can beat, and it can certainly beat Ruby in in certain ways. Obviously, concurrency, obviously scale, like these are things that we talk about a lot. That's going to attract a subset of people. It's, but it's not, I don't think it's actually going to att- attract the vast majority of Rubyists because I don't think mo- the vast majority of Rubyists care. That's not what they're optimizing for. And so it's a bad competition in some ways because we just can't, you have to work so hard to beat them at their own game mm-hmm. to the degree that I don't know that you ever will. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and how would you, like, how would you sell Elixir, right? I mean, that's kind of a hard question. <laughs> I have, I am really glad I don't have to be the one to make that decision because. I'm honestly not sure that I have any good ideas. And I think it's also, it just also, it's a factor of, unfortunately, time, right? I mean, the Ruby community, I know we talk about the Ruby community a lot, but it's much older, right? It's had a lot of time to figure these things out and figure out what it's good for. And with Rails, right, that brought a whole new wave of folks who were able to do a certain thing quickly, et cetera. Um, And it just takes time on some level to figure out exactly what, yeah, who are those people who need this particular language and this particular tool and for what, right? That takes time. I've often mm. wondered, and this, this goes back to the idea that maybe, maybe we're doing ourselves a disservice trying to pull so much from the Ruby community. I think there's great things that, we've, that Elixir has brought from the Ruby community, like in terms of sensibilities, in terms of uh, ease of use and those sorts of things. But I've wondered if we should stop trying to attack that market, so to speak. Um, in terms of attracting those people and i mean maybe the right market is the 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 dark matter c sharp people you know or the dark matter like java people where you can kind of point to the technical reasons why this would 
you know, you can get stuff done just as quickly and as you can in Java, but now it's also fault tolerant and now it has these great characteristics or whatever the case may be. Uh, and I've wondered if that's like uh, maybe a, a potential market that Elixir should be looking at. Um, and it's hard. I think you, you you end up competing against solutions like Go. Again, from just from a purely marketing perspective, I think Go has a has a lot of really really compelling features that Elixir just doesn't have right now, and maybe never will have. That can be that could be the difference between marketing to that crowd and not. It's tough. I don't know. I I feel like I'm just complaining, or not <laughs> complaining, but just or just maybe just being negative on my outlook. But I think it's I think it's a it's going to be a long road to hoe. It's going to be a hard problem to solve for the community in terms of how do we market to different audiences? What are those audiences looking for? And how do we pick a, pick a certain niche mm-hmm. and just say like, this is the one we're going after. And how do we, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to something and maybe let me know if you don't actually want to comment on this, but I want to go back to what you said about maybe the Elixir community, uh, distancing itself a little bit from the Ruby community. I don't know if you want to say more about that or not, but that's interesting. Yeah, I, I can talk about that a bit. I mean, I think it manifests itself in two distinct ways, one of which is the marketing thing where I'm not sold that that's a that's a um, audience that we that we're going to go capture immediately, because, again, I just don't think we can beat them at their own game. Like, I don't think we can beat them at being being the solution that gets stuff out the door faster or is more productive if that you know people people love to throw that around like oh i'm so productive in this language and it's like well that's like an unknowable thing in terms of a comparison between languages you can't say one is more productive than the other that's like an unknowable metric but people do say that and, and and that's purely in their heads it's whatever they're comfortable with but at the same time like i don't think we're gonna beat them at that at that marketing and so I think the people who want to leave Ruby, who want alternatives, have already done so or are already going to do so. Like, I'm not sure that we need to do more effort there. The other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of people are coming to Elixir now who aren't from the Ruby community. And how much do we ingratiate ourselves with those people if we're still talking about Ruby? I mean, we're doing it right now. Right. You know, we're, <laughs> If we're if we're always still talking about Ruby or if we're bringing Rubyists in to speak at conferences or we're we have all these like kind of like Ruby in jokes or it's 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 funny to kind of poke at Ruby because it's slow or it's funny to poke at Rails. It's funny to make comparisons between Phoenix and Rails just because that's a thing people do. It's it's just a funny thing um, that people do. And, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong or whatever, but. You know, people make those jokes and those comparisons. And, and we have this whole new set of people now who are from a bunch of other languages. Like I know a bunch of people who've come from C Sharp. They don't get all those comparisons. They don't get the end jokes. They don't get the baggage that's happened. And a lot of times they've been sort of like, I don't get it. They've, I mean, they've literally, I've had people literally tell me like, oh, I don't get it. And is this like a Ruby thing? Is that why everybody's hung up on this? Is that why a thing, is this why people are upset or really excited about this? And they don't, they don't have any reference for that. And I wonder how much we distance ourselves from other people because we're, we're you know, to, to some people, I'm sure it feels a little bit like Ruby Community 2.0. Right. I totally hear what you're saying. I think one of the reasons we talk about the Ruby community so much, I mean, from the positives at least, right, is the things that they've done well. Um, I think there's a lot that I think Elixir is, has taken positively as far as building community and what to think about. Um, and I think the Ruby, Ruby community has done that really well. And I so think we would 
it only harm the elixir community to not think about those same things when building community and all that. Um, but I totally hear what you're saying as far as the community defining itself or starting to define itself or continuing to define itself, right? I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you, do you think that that's a reasonable thing we should be concerned about? Or are we making, you know, am I making too much out of that? Um, I think it's good for a community to think about what defines the community. You know, as the community grows, it's good for it to have like its own principles and how it and to think about how it welcomes people that are coming in and continues to support people that are already there. And I think that'll happen over time. I'm not as worried about the I don't know, maybe that's not the right thought process to have, but I'm not as worried about uh, separate the elixir community necessarily trying to distance itself from the Ruby community because I think it is already in itself a separate community. I think Rubyists have come in, but like you said, other people already also have come in. And I think as the community continues to grow and mature, that'll further define the community itself. Um, I think there'll be a little bit of a more natural definition between the two, not good or bad, just that it'll, the community will continue to define itself and form and grow and have its own identity. Um, I think, that, again, like, like, like any other thing, right? It just takes time. We're comparing ourselves. We're not comparing. We're talking about the Ruby community. It's much older. And so I think these things will inherently evolve over time. and. I think taking the good and then thinking about the things that we don't like or would do differently and being conscientious about that can only serve uh, to help the Elixir community going forward. Um, I don't know. Take that for what you will. <laughs> I, I think you're, no, I think you're right. Well, and to some degree, it's a little bit, I mean, all, it's, it's a little, the whole thing is a little silly because it's, it's, it's about a group of people surrounded by a programming language, which is just always funny to me when we talk about language communities but it is it's it is interesting how they grow and how they they shape each other and how they change and it's a big part of why people i mean this is this goes back to the idea that this is most these are not technical decisions these are human mm -hmm. decisions the fact that we care about this stuff and the fact that we're sitting here talking about it now points to the fact that these are about it's about human beings right so much more than it's about any sort of technical technical stuff well and to that point right if we don't have a environment people want to you know be belong to or hang out in or contribute to then your language, if your language doesn't get used, your language dies, right, essentially. And mm -hmm. so I think it's good that people recognize the importance of that. But yeah, it's definitely like a human, just the language itself isn't enough, right? The language could be amazing, but if nobody feels like they want, they don't feel comfortable communicating about it or engaging with the community, then the chances are they're probably not going to want to use it, right? So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think it's cool that people are coming in from all different, from other languages. And seeing how they're, you know, it's, it's great, right? How their differing perspectives will help propel the community forward, hopefully, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I want to see, I'm, I'm really interested to see what people do with Elixir still. I always say this in my talks and, and I've said it on, on here before, I think, but these are still, it's still so early. Mm -hmm. I think we're already jumping towards what are the best practices and how do we start to do this or that or whatever? Um, how do we solve these specific solutions? And what's my what's my library? What's the library I install and which one's the best? And I don't know. To me, it's still so early in this in the community's life. I would be a little bit disappointed if we decided that this was as good as we could do. Right. And we just sort of all said, all right, well, these are the best ideas anybody's had. So we've distilled them all down. And 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 now we're going to use those. And, and here's where we're at. And I, would, I don't know, I would be I would be a little bit bummed if everybody in the community just sort of said, all right, here's what we're going to do. I think it's it's such a great time right now to take chances and to try new stuff 
because it's pretty low risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you might and also you might come up with the idea that is the brilliant new idea that helps, you know, change the face of of the industry. That's really exciting to me. That's really, really compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I agree. Because I think it's a fun time. I mean, I totally agree with you. That being said, how do you I think the community is doing a pretty good job, actually. But how do we, you know, continue to maintain for new people coming in? who want, you know, who are new to the language, a lot of it is like, well, what's the best way to do this thing? Or how do you actually scale appropriately? Or if we're talking about supervision architecture, like what does that look like in a way that's actually effective, right? How do you know that you're not like creating something that is actually not going to work just based on the way you've set up your systems? Um, And so it's a balance, right, between like pushing forward and then still providing a little bit of that. I mean, because we don't have, again, I think you're right, it's still evolving and there's still so much that's happening. And I would ho- like also like to think that this is very early in the beginning. But people do have those questions, right? And so without setting things in s- complete stone, how do we also provide that guidance? Because I think people do want that, especially people who are just starting to adopt something, maybe for a new project or companies that are starting to adopt something. How do we do this the best way possible, right? Best practices, et cetera. That's a that's a fantastic question. Like you said, you have to have a balance. And I would say number one, I think I think the best places to point people, uh, there's a there's a couple good, really, really good resources for, for newcomers. Um, and obviously a lot of people coming in, they've they've heard about the language. They've heard about the the tools that that make it really popular. I mean, Phoenix, nerves, those are two words that attract people. People know those words coming in. They know what to go look for and they and they if you follow the documentation for those things. If you read the Phoenix book or you read, you know, Lance's book. I mean, even just the guides are good, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, any of that. If you just go dive into those things, you will come out uh, knowing what you need to know about those frameworks to get going. The second tier of that is, you know, pointing people at the stuff that has existed for a long time, which is all the knowledge that's wrapped up in the Erlang community, um, which is sometimes really hard to go get, <laughs> sometimes really hard to, to, to understand. You have to dig for some of that, but there's really good knowledge that are, and there's even more great libraries that are already in the Erlang ecosystem. And we can start to learn from those folks because they've been doing this a lot longer than us. And they have a lot of really great libraries and really great hard won knowledge about what is it like to run this thing in production? How are you going to have failures? You know, it wouldn't be an episode of the show if we didn't talk about Fred and some <laughs> so, right, you know, right. go read uh, Erlang and Anger <laughs> right. and learn all that stuff in Erlang and Anger because it's, it's got some great information in there, especially for us as Elixir people. Not all of it's, you know, not all of it is as applicable to us, but the majority of it is, the, like the vast majority of that book is, you know. And so if you're new coming in, there, there's definitely things that we can point to people. And I, and I definitely don't want to suggest that we don't do that. But I do think that there is an imperative for us as Elixir people to do two things. One is, if you've been in the community for a while, I mean, my only goal is I just want to encourage people to go play around with new stuff. Go invent your own thing that solves this problem because you'll learn a ton about it. And you'll probably learn a lot about why the the library that you're using chose to do things the way it did or you'll have a deeper understanding about specific pieces of the beam or specific pieces of the language, you know. Like ignore all the rules, go do, go build stuff and just use macros the whole time and <laughs> learn about how macros work and enjoy that because what, I mean, maybe don't ship that to production, but I mean, who, who's going to really actually be upset by that? You know, go learn about those things because they're important and go try out stuff because you might stumble into something that's really, really good. 
The other piece of that is I think we have to be willing to listen a lot to the experiences of people coming in from the outside world. We have a lot of influence already from the Ruby community. And, and that's not to say that it's not valuable. Like I don't want to imply that or that it's bad. You know, as we attract people in from C Sharp, from, from Java, from these other paradigms. I mean, I have friends who are coming in from Clojure. And a lot of people that uh, are working here in town, they, there's a startup here in town called Pylon. And they all have a background in Clojure. They did Clojure for very, very large companies. They're coming to Elixir now. <clears throat> because it's, I mean, as they say, because it's basically easier to hire closure or to hire Elixir people than it is to hire closure people. Oh, interesting. And they have a ton of very, very, very different sensibilities than I think a lot than I than I definitely do, and I would suspect than a lot of the Elixir community does. I mean, they look at certain libraries and they just opt to do it themselves because of the way that you know just the sensibilities they're bringing from closure. And I think if we look at those other communities and listen to the ideas that they have as they come in, we're going to we're going to grow and we're going to maybe find solutions that we didn't always realize were there. Everybody, everybody has blind, everybody has blind spots. Everybody has those blind spots or those things that they just they take uh, for granted now that you just do because those are those are the best practices we had in XYZ framework or XYZ technology or past experience or whatever. But turns out. Not everybody, not everybody's past experiences are the same. I mean, who knew, right? So <laughs> yeah. listening to those people provides to you a whole new set of insights. For instance, look, go look at the Haskell community and see what, what, what are they doing right now? What are ideas we could pull from the Haskell community that might be really interesting? What are things that Clojure did really well? You know, what are things that uh, the F-sharp community is doing? How is the F-sharp community working with the C-sharp community? What do they do right? What do they do wrong? How do we make sure we don't make those same mistakes in the in the in the merger of Elixir and Erlang? And and by the same token, how do we do the things that, that F sharp and C sharp did really, really well mm-hmm. in the merger of, of F sharp? And how do we how do we take advantage of that? You know, et cetera. Yeah, what did Clojure do really well working with the Java community? How can we be better about that? I think there's so many other places to pull good ideas from. And and I'm, you know, I wanted to make sure that I want to encourage people to to take advantage of those things, to look at to look at those alternative solutions and to think about what it might be to have those sorts of things or to lean into those kinds of ideas more. Like you said, it's still early in the community and it's especially a good time for that now. There's a lot of opportunity to to do that and to think about that. And I think that there is a really interesting opportunity to help kind of not define the community going forward, but like bring in the things that you would like to see. Is there anything that you would like you personally would like to see um, in the near future as part of the, like brought to the community? Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) I've always feel like I have to be so careful when I say, you know, when when this kinds of stuff gets brought up because you run the risk of sounding overly critical Mm -hmm. and I don't want to do that. I don't want to just be critical of stuff. I don't know. I, I'm interested to see what alternatives some of the well-established libraries would look like um you know there there's racks that exists now is just kind of a, an alternative to plug really more than it is to, to phoenix even um i don't i don't know that it's fair to have an alternative to phoenix because phoenix to me is it really just feels like channels uh, and plug does <clears throat> does the majority of like the heavy lifting in phoenix um so phoenix is is like a template library and channels and channels is the is the thing that i think really makes phoenix special 
but you know, I mean, Rax is out now and it's an alternative to Phoenix and, and I'm excited that it exists just because I think it makes everybody better. I think it makes the community better because it having competition is a good thing. I mean, having competition is, is great because it forces everybody to continue to get better. I find myself reaching for Mobius a lot when I'm doing database stuff because the majority of the time I'm using Postgres anyway. Um, and I really like Mobius. I think Mobius is a great tool. And that's not to say that Ecto's bad or that Phoenix is bad. Those are still great tools. It's just I'm interested to see what solution, what alternative solutions to those might look like. Mm-hmm. Just because I think it may it it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to me. One of the reasons I built uh, I've been working on a raft implementation for so long is because I want to know what that looks like. I want to know what the community does with it if it exists. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of others that exist. And I actually caught I got a bunch. Of, I got like subtweeted by some by some fancy distributed systems Erlang people complaining about all the raft implementations that were out there or whatever. So that was funny. Um, so you know I've been accused of, of reinventing the wheel as well. But part of me is is like well. I would I, because I was curious to see what would happen if you had a really solid version of raft that used a real database store like rocks or L, or LMDB or something like that. You know, what would happen? You know, there's there's plenty of of AP solutions out there in the world, like for, for Erlang and Elixir. If you want to use LASP, like LASP is a thing. If you want to use uh, React, React Core is a thing. And you can totally use all that stuff. Um, and prov- and build solutions that way. And that's really interesting. I'm curious to see what people would do with a solution that didn't look like that, or that had different semantics. What would people do with that, if anything? And maybe the answer is nothing. And I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm 100% cool with throwing my time into a ditch and, <laughs> and just like walking away from it because it's interesting, it's fun for me. And I'm curious to see what people do with it. I, you know, just because it may or may not have an impact on the community. I don't know, but it's fun. It's interesting. <laughs> it might get people to think a little differently about about problems. And and that's kind of enough reason for me to do a thing. And like you said, having alternatives isn't necessarily saying that the things that exist are bad, right? It's just exploring um, other ideas, other opportunities and differing perspectives, right? Allowing for those differing perspectives to be expressed, which in the end allows us to continue to come up with better solutions or improve on the solutions we already have. I don't know that anybody would really argue that having just one solution in any given language would be the optimal way to go about it, because I, I think that very quickly would lead to stagnation. We would just wouldn't progress because there's no imperative to progress. So having those that competition is a good thing. Like having those alternatives is a good thing long term because it's going to force us all to pick and choose and figure out which things work for which problems that we have and. It's going to make us all try to get better. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's a good thing. No, totally. I totally agree. And I think it's clear, like to your point earlier, I don't think, especially on here, right? I think the intentions are always good. You're not trying to be, none of us are trying to be uh, specifically critical, right? <laughs> We're not trying to slag anybody here or slag anybody's time or. Well, and I think the, we, we all recognize how much time and effort and et cetera goes into open source software and delivering open source software and maintaining open source software, right? Like it's not. You know, and it, and that those tools definitely serve a purpose. So it's never like it's never intended to be negative, right? It's just more of a discussion about yeah. what's possible. So yeah. So you were in Tennessee. Yeah. You were you were down here in uh, the very hot and muggy south. It was south. so cool. I'm bummed that we didn't actually get to record in the same place. I know uh, we could not make that. But work I'll be back just in schedules and a few weeks. Stuff, so we'll figure. Maybe maybe we can make it happen then. Are you, you're coming, wait, so you're coming back, you're, you're going to be coming back down for the conference here, right? No, I'm coming back, um, in June. Okay. 
um, after Stockholm. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. But you are actually coming down here for the conference down here too, right? Gig City? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I am really, really excited. So Gig City Elixir is happening. Oh, I better actually look it up because I won't know otherwise. GigCityElixir.com. GigCityElixir.com. Uh, October 26th through 27th at the Aquarium Conference Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, this is super exciting for me. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I've been here for a, a long time and it has felt like I'm the sole Elixir person in town for for so long, which is not actually true. There's plenty of other people who who have been like in and around the community for a while, but it's it's very it's felt very isolating at times. So it's super cool. We're gonna have a we're having a conference here, and the speaker lineup is is fantastic. I, I mean, I say that just very like self promoting since I'm on the, the speaker <laughs> list, <laughs> but I didn't really mean to include myself in that. And, you know that this 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 August crowd here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Dave Thomas and John Hughes are going to be here. Should be really, really fun. Um, so I hope people can come out to that. And it's, it's such a great feeling having a conference in my own town. Yeah. Especially an Elixir conference in my own town. It's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, after all these years, it's a pretty unique feeling. So that's, it's exciting. Yeah, no, I've heard, I'm really excited for the, for folks that are potentially interested. Uh, I just keep only hearing good things um, about the group putting this together. And I think they're being really intentional about the speakers and about the environment they want to have and make sure it's inclusive and welcoming. So definitely encourage folks if they're interested to, to check that out. And Chattanooga is a fun town. It's We're going to be awesome. down by the river at the aquarium. Chattanooga is yeah. awesome. I really enjoyed spending a few days there. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's not the biggest city in the world. It's not the flashiest city in the world. We got it. We got a few things going on. But it's awesome. It's I don't know. Cool. I loved it. It was great. If you're into rock climbing or outdoorsy things at all, it's a great place for that. Also really good coffee. We're punching well above our weight in coffee. And ice cream. Say. Yeah. We have some pretty great ice cream, <laughs> <clears throat> pretty great ice cream, pretty great coffee. Uh, basically everything you need exactly burrito game is okay <laughs> we could be better at burritos but overall it's a pretty it's a pretty great place and if you come out here i will i will personally walk you to whatever coffee shop and or ice cream parlor you would like to go to and get you both coffee and oh, ice cream. there you go <laughs> so i figured i needed to give them a shout out since yeah. uh since since that's happening you can so you can say no to this topic <laughs> <laughs> uh this is something jeff wise Friend of the show, Jeff Wise, suggested we discuss. I think he said, what is our thoughts on bringing in, you know, kind of the standard keynote speaker lineup or like well-known speakers versus having more regional selected speakers? What's our what's our thoughts on that? I don't know if you want to talk about that because he intentionally knew it was charged. And so, yeah, um... we don't have to talk about this. You can say no and we'll just edit all this out. No, it's fine. I mean, I think. It's a balance, right? I would like to think when I'm going to a conference, whoever's putting that conference together is being really thoughtful about the type of conference they're trying to have and the type of information they want shared. And so being really thoughtful in that if there are people who are really well-known in the community or people who you know do have really interesting things and compelling things to say, having them have a presence, but not forgetting that there are a lot of people in the community that maybe aren't those people who are already very well known that also have very interesting things to say. And I think you can definitely strike. It's if you're intentional about it, you can strike the right balance. Um, because I think it's 
important for multiple voices to be able to share their thoughts on things. Um, and so you definitely want, in my ideal conference, you definitely have diverse perspectives from different parts of the community. And sometimes it's really hard. To, I mean, putting together a conference is hard. So I totally recognize that there's a lot of challenges in like, you know, putting all that together. But that would be my take is I would like to continue to see like balanced perspectives or balanced conferences in the fact that they share, they bring together people that have different perspectives and experiences, whether it be different perspectives on a particular library technology or different, you know, levels of experience within the community, et cetera. So along those lines of people who are coming into the community who are first time speakers and, and giving people, uh, giving those, giving new voices agency to be heard at these conferences. What are things that we can be doing better to provide mentorship, to provide like access for, for new speakers? Like, like I always worry about, I, I always, and we've, I mean, this came up even when we were talking about Elixir Bridge. I always worry about putting someone in a situation without giving them the support structure, like, the, like without building, a, like you're basically like putting a rocket on the launch pad, <laughs> but then you're not putting any scaffolding around mm -hmm. it as you try to build it. And you're just sort of saying, all right, we'll go build it uh, or, or hope you have a good launch, like hope it all goes well for you. So I'm always curious to see how, what sort of scaffolding can we be doing to one, be, be striking a, a good balance for conferences to be inclusive, to reach a diverse set of speakers and reach a diverse and, and in turn, hopefully reach a, a more diverse audience. And how do we give people who are new to speaking, who are new to the community how do we give them the scaffolding so that they are, can be successful in that endeavor? Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to give them to give to give a new speaker opportunity. It's another thing to give them opportunity and scaffolding to be successful. Because mm -hmm. the opportunity does not dictate the success. It's true. That's a really good question. I mean, I don't know that I have a good answer to that yet. Right. Uh, I think giving people the opportunity is important. And then, you know, allowing them to run with that a little bit. It's a different model if you're going to be very intentional about providing that scaffolding. Um, I think it's I think it'd be awesome. I think it's important. I also recognize that it's a lot of overhead for a particular conference, right? Uh, Deconstruct is doing something like that. I don't know if you've heard. Yeah, I've been following that a little bit. And that sounds awesome. Um, but that's like very intentional. And they made sure that that was very focused for first time speakers and giving them the opportunity and then helping them. So I think that's amazing. But I do recognize that that's a whole different level of overhead that comes with the conference. So I don't know that I have a good answer for general conferences, right? I think I like the fact that conferences are not, it's not, it's not only the same people speaking over and over again, right? It's nice to see new faces with new ideas speaking. And I think that's important. Um, in addition to hearing the people that do have interesting things to say who have been involved in the community for a while, right? I like that that's, there's a mix of people. Um, I don't. I would have to think about that. I don't know how to have a good answer because putting on a conference is already a large endeavor. It would be great to create that scaffolding or support, but I don't know that, I don't know what that would look like for conferences in general, right? Because every conference is a little bit different. It feels like so much of what you, of what you need is, is mentorship. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is, at least for me, I don't know, I, I still don't consider myself to be a super great public speaker. I've done a fair amount of conference talks and that kind of stuff. Spoken a lot of meetups. I still don't consider myself to be very good mm -hmm. <laughs> at any of that. And I think a lot of it's just, it's just practice. You know, it's, you got to get those Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to, and it's hard. Like there's no substitute for actually getting up in front of, you know, a lot of people and 
actually giving the talk and actually going through it and actually getting the beats right. And, and, and some, in so many ways, there's, there's no substitute for that experience. Cause you can rehearse that talk for hours in front of a mirror or something like that. And it's just different when it's you get true. up there and you see those people. But I think if you, you know, when you're first starting to speak, think having somebody potentially help you with like a story arc and like what you're actually trying to say and what you're actually trying to get out of the talk and how to make sure that information is coming across is really clear. And like, cause every talk, I mean, there's a lot of talks, right? It's a different way of telling a story about something that already exists, right? Like about an aspect of the language or about a library or whatever. And so how do you want to tell that story? And I think it's beneficial to have, if you, if you do have access to people who have or are experienced speakers and you can rehearse and you can get feedback, I just don't know the right way of setting that up that would actually be effective because you would need to have a whole set of volunteers willing to be available. You know, and I think, again, it's just another level of overhead. And you know, we all know that community work takes a lot of time and effort, et cetera. So um, I don't know what that would look like. Right. I think mentorship is really key, but I don't know how to set that up, how you would set that up effectively. Right. I would need to think about that. So I have I have two questions then uh, to, to follow up on that. One is what are some resources that you have found to be really useful as you've been doing more and more public speaking, as you've been traveling, as you as you globetrot to <laughs> every possible Elixir conference, I mean, Elixir and Erlang conference. And then two, along with your globetrotting. Uh, are there things coming up that you're that you're excited about that you wanted to to mention to for people? Things in the Elixir community, or oh yeah, you know, just events or things you're you, you may be going to in the future um, that you're that you're excited that you might want to just talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as the speaking, I mean, I Gary Bernhardt. I'll try to add it to the show. I'll try to find the link to the blog post about speaking. He has a great blog post uh, about how to begin thinking about preparing a talk that if people, especially if they're first time speakers, I think would find useful. I'll try and find it and add the link. I, uh, this is not going to be helpful to most people. (laughs) I have a background. I did a lot of theater growing up from when I was a kid till about college. And so I spent a lot of time on stage. Um, and I think that's definitely helpful. Um, but that's not necessarily helpful to people who are starting to speak. I think a lot of, from what I've learned, at least at speaking at conferences, right, a lot of, at least what I think a good talk uh, contains is, is that arc, right? Is that story arc? What are you trying to tell people? How clearly are you able to deliver that message? What is your goal, right? What are you trying, what do you want the audience to come away with? And having a clear idea about that is really important. And so uh, I think that Gary Bernhardt blog is really, really good. We should. Yeah, I, I found the link okay, cool. and I put it in show notes. So we'll, we can we get that. But I think, like, like you said, I'm not an expert, right? Like, I think I could still become a much better public speaker, right? Like, I'm still looking for, like, I'm continually looking at things and resources and trying to think about how could I be, how could I be better, right? I don't think I'm any, you know, necessarily amazing. <laughs> at it. And that, and, to, and to, I would like to encourage folks that are thinking about it, right? If they have something they want to talk about and they're first-time speakers, not to be shy about submitting, even if you think that something's already been talked about, you maybe have a different perspective that's worth sharing. Uh, that's the that's the 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 best piece of advice I think I could give is just find something that you're excited about and give that talk because chances are someone is interested in it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I tell people all the time. I mean, there's so many there's so much information out there. It's really how you the narrative that you want to put around it, right? How are you going to share that information? Because your perspective and how you explain something will be different than somebody else does, and somebody will get something out of it, right? Given the way that you choose to share that information. I added a book. Uh, to hear, I added a book to show notes called Show and Tell. Uh, it's by it's by Dan Rome. 
you can you could honestly read the entire thing in an hour. I mean, it, it's it's oh, that's awesome. it's so 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 short, but it is it is the book that has had the biggest impact on my speaking and and the way that I construct slides and the way I construct talks. I mean, he really gives you a framework for how to lay out things, how to create the arc like that you're talking about. He talks he he basically goes in depth of like here's the ways that you do this successfully. The talks that I have done that I felt came off the best, they're the ones that cleave closest to to his rubric. Um, they're really, really, it's a really great book and worth picking up. That so I awesome. added that to show notes as well. What about you? Like, what are you, what are you, so show and tell is something that you've read. Is there anything else that you lean on when? Um, show and tell is really good. Uh, I would second the, um, the deconstruct uh, blog post on how to prepare a talk. Um, I have to say my methodology is very different. Like I, I've attempted to do that workflow on how to prepare a talk. Um, and it just doesn't work for me. Like my mind mm-hmm. does not work the way that that works. Um, so I, I do very different things. I think the spirit of it is totally correct, which is that you just get, you know, your ideas down and you just, you, you, you work the, you work the talk until it's in the correct shape, like long before you do slides or anything like that. But if, if you can follow that recipe, um, it's a great recipe and, and you should follow it. But it is not, I think it's important to add that it's not the only way, right? Yeah, or totally. If that doesn't work for you. If that doesn't yeah, work for you. Yeah, if it doesn't then... work for you, you're not, you're not broken and you're not hopeless. <laughs> you know, you'll find another <laughs> right. methodology. Um, mine is very, very different, um, but it probably doesn't work for anybody but me <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> That's fair. I'll add one other book that I've, I've <clears> been getting a lot of uh, value out of. It's a little campy, but I think it's, it's, it's got some good, um, it's got some good stuff in there, um, but it's called Do You Talk Funny? And it's another good book. And it's, it's, it has, it has a, to do with uh, adding a lot of humor to your, to your public speaking as a way to bring people in, ingratiate them, um, and, and tell more compelling stories, tell stories that people will remember more. Are you speaking anywhere or heading anywhere soon? Uh, no. Um, I'm speaking at Gig City, and that's about it. I, I used to submit a lot more talks to places. I used to try to submit stuff even when I wasn't very excited about the stuff I would submit just because I thought it was – I enjoyed a, a free conference and <laughs> being able to <laughs> to go and, and see their speakers and that kind of thing. But um, mm-hmm. I have kind of taken a step back. I really only submit talks about stuff I'm really, really excited about. And if I'm not – if I don't have anything that I'm really, really excited about, I, I just don't submit anymore because it's it's too much stress to go worry about the talk, worry about giving the talk, worry about if my slides are in the right order, rehearsing the talk, dealing with the anxiety of getting up on stage, all those sorts of things. Given, given, given the option, if, if I'm not excited, like deeply excited about a topic, I would much rather just go and just be an audience member and not have that stress level. Um, if I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it, then, then all of that anxiety and all that stress is greatly diminished because I'm super excited just naturally about the thing that I want to talk about. And so it's easier to get up there. Um, if I'm not as enthused, um, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of walk That's away totally from. That's totally fair. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to Gig City. I'll probably end up at ElixirConf at the end of the year. Um, but that's, that's probably about it unless something, unless something else changes. Um, you're going to Stockholm? Yeah, I'll be in Stockholm a couple weeks. That'll be fun. I'm excited about I, that. It's, I'm so, I am really jealous of, of all y'all going to Stockholm. Uh, like. So, so many of my friends are going to Stockholm and I'm like, ah, oh, that sounds like so much fun right now. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be fun. And then I think I'm going to try and do an Elixir bridge around the time of ElixirConf. We'll see in Seattle. We'll see. We'll see what happens. 
Cool. Cool, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up? Or we kind of wrap this no, one up? I no, think, I think we should wrap this one up. All right, All right. cool. All right. Later. All right, bye. bye.